Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the event Song of the Crocodile, Nadi Simpson in conversation with Grace Lucas Pennington, recorded live at Mullumbimby Civic Hall as part of the Byron Writers Festival Out of Season program. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. It's so nice to see such a full hall. And again, I'm really pleased to be here. Back to events in real life. It is a real privilege to be sitting here tonight with this amazing author next to me. So, Nadi. Hi. (laughs) Uh, We've known each other since 2018 when Nadi won a Black and White Fellowship and I had the absolute pleasure of working with Nadi over the manuscript development period to edit that what you now see is this beautiful, beautiful book published by Hachette Australia. Nadi, do you want to take us back to the beginning and tell me why you decided, why you needed to write this story? Uh, there's lots of different answers to that. I, uh, I've been really lucky to sing for 20 years and my songs were getting real long. <laughs> And I had to do something. (laughs) A little bit boring. (laughs) Um, I think, uh, looking back on it now, when I was little, I really wanted to write. Mm. When I went to high school, I retreated. I lost confidence in that. And music was there. And so I latched onto that. And... For me, it felt like a sort of uh, redressing an old business, unfinished business. Mm. And I think for my music, the strength of what I do, if you can call it that, is in the story. Not so much. I really enjoy singing. I, I sing with a beautiful singer. So my singing job is really easy. I just got to, you know, stand next to her and let her go. Uh, and so... Telling stories in my music was always the thing that um, I was best at. And it was a natural progression for me to move into writing something longer. And, you know, I daydream a lot and I talk to myself a lot and writing like this seemed to um, fit those two weird things. And so I daydreamed for four years writing what I was calling chapters, but I mean, there was probably, I don't know, three pages of babble, I guess. And uh, then I did a writing course at uh, Writing New South Wales, and I was trying to explain why I did that yesterday um, to Ben, and it was because I didn't know what the path was. I didn't know what the track had to look like, so I did that course to understand, you know, what a book could, writing a book could look like. And after that year, I took off. 
writing. Mm. And at the end of that year, my beautiful mentor teacher, Emily Maguire, uh, she sort of looked at where everybody was and she then suggested what you needed to do and she said, listen, there's, there's a fellowship called Black and Right for Indigenous writers. Put it in there and you'll get feedback. And then you won. <laughs> yeah, that was good feedback. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was on that judging panel for that manuscript competition. I remember it coming in. I was like, Nadia Simpson, I know that name. She's a musician. She's written a book now. You know, first I'd ever heard of you writing. Um, and I don't know if any of you have started Song of the Crocodile yet, but from the very, very first page, it was clear that this was uh, in the hands of a lyrical master. Oh. Straight away. Everyone on the judging so, panel. Press, pl- press record, somebody. <laughs> Get your phone out. Hey, I will say it over and over again. It was so impressive. Um, so I think you've always been a natural writer. Um, we couldn't actually believe how strong of a manuscript it was because it was still a draft. We did do some work on it, but there's some passages that are completely unchanged from that very time. So Yeah, but you fixed it up. Yeah, no. We worked together. See, she's a lovely lady. Would you like, would you like to read... Some from the beginning of the book for us. Yeah, sure. Uh, Margaret Lightning opened her eyes with the first soft stretching of birds' wings, a waking pink sky beginning its creep over her hessian and tin home. A fog hung upon the river. It spilled over the lip of the bank and into the campgrounds, blurring the edges of each gundi and lean-to, suspending them in an exhaled breath. Only ants and eagles were up and well into their business, scavenging what they could from the dew-laden night before. Soon, parrots would join, their shrieks cannoning along the surface of the water, a bush alarm to wake and to rise. This would trigger a chain of events, sunlight stretching across cold tin, roofs popping, warm muscles shifting under scratchy too-short blankets, and a series of stretches and farts, then the opening of eyes. In a short while, smoke would rise to meet the fog, and the smell of kitchen fires would permeate the riverfront. The inhabitants of the campgrounds would rise to prepare for the new day. As Margaret sat up and placed her feet upon the dirt floor, a family of sulphur-crested cockatoos dived into the enormous red gum at the front of her camp. She slipped her arms into her nightgown as the bird screeched, its hem floating like her own tail behind her as she walked out of the room, pulled aside the heavy canvas that hung as her front door and stepped outside. Lifting the lid of the browning water drum and placing it silently down, she cupped her hands, then submerged them, allowing the water's icy pulse to stream into her veins. To take her mind from the stinging cold, she began to hum, careful to restrict the descending line so that only a series of squeaks and gushes of air emitted from her body. While her hands floated, she swam in the song. Margaret lifted her face towards the sky, its rising warmth pushing her chin upwards, closing her eyes. Heat 
crept into the lines on her face. She felt it drip into her brow and trickle towards her lips from the pathways at her temples and her cheeks. With her hands in the water and her face to the sun, Margaret Lightning continued her song. She hummed as she rubbed water into her face and ran her wet hands through her hair, as she then twisted and pulled it into her regular low bun. She even hummed as she prodded at the wiry strands of grey that had begun to spark at her forehead. The tune rolled on as she walked back inside and changed into her undergarments and slip, her uniform and shoes. Only when she took up her purse, a refashioned canvas water bag, from the kitchen table and left her home did she bring the sound forwards, daring to push it into the air in front of her. Her breath and words soon transformed, timid tune into robust phrase. Margaret's footsteps keeping time as she walked the first of the four miles into town along the river's edge. Thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, There's so much music in this book, as you would expect from a musician. Uh, There's the music of the river, of the birds, of the women, of the trees, and it all comes out so beautifully when you read your own words. On that, can you tell us, tell what is the song of the crocodile? Mm. What is the song of the crocodile? Ah, I'm going to sing it at the end. Yeah. My version of the song of the crocodile. The song, I was talking to kids in Manalbo there today. What is a song? Uh, it's a track. It's a story. It's a dance. It's painting, movement. Uh, the song of the, well, I guess, how metaphysical can I get? The song of the crocodile for me is the transformation from singing, uh, Oh, let me say this right now. Uh, from making music from words mm. into making word, the words the music. Mm. I probably mucked that up a bit, but you, you know what I mean. <laughs> so my song was that change. Mm. Uh, there's a big story out where... Uh, my family come from, Lightning Ridge. Uh, a big dreaming story, and it's a story of a crocodile. Uh, two crocodiles, actually, and they ate the creator's wives, and they created a big inland lake called Narran Lakes, called Duddy War. And so the song of the crocodile is that as well. But also, I mean, uh, crocodiles, I think crocodiles for me, they're scary, <laughs> like seriously, cunningly scary. Mm-hmm. I'm with you, yep. <laughs> They're fast. They track you. They think. Mm. They're too good for us. We are never going to win a battle with a crocodile, mm. us little lowly humans. So what is that power? What, what does it mean for that energy to exist somewhere in the vicinity of people? Uh, that was something that I was interested in because I think that I've seen it and my family have seen that deadly power Mm. that lurks 
around towns and around stories and around um, histories. Mm. 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 Thank you. Um, Song of the Crocodile is set on your country. Mm. Uh, tell us, can you tell us about Darnmore yeah. and the campground? Yeah. Well, Darnmore is the town in the book. And it sort of could be anywhere, really. What mm. I was aiming for it to be was everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> uh, it's a place that is, I think, obsessed with this idea of progress because it's eked out, it's fashioned itself from uh, the appearance of nothing. And so the more that you add the greater the progress or the bigger the success the town is. I think Darnmore is a little bit like that. But Darnmore doesn't exist without the campgrounds, mm. which in the book is the place where a um, handful of Aboriginal families live along the river, only because they're not allowed in town. And this is a, a common story out Western New South Wales. It's part of um, my family's history. They lived on a place called Monkeela Bend, out, out of town. Mm. Uh, not allowed to go in, set, kept separate. Um, and enforced no man's land almost. Uh, and so as you can't have Darnmore without the campgrounds, you can't have the campgrounds without Darnmore makes me wonder whether they need each other to exist. Mm. I don't know. It's a question that I, I think about a little bit. So it's really, you know, the separation of people who belong and people who are creating a belonging. Mm. That's the best way for me to describe that. And, I mean, the campgrounds for me came out of... My dad is one of 11 kids saying this yesterday. He's admit, right in the middle. Oh, cheeky middle one and um, whenever they talk about Monkeela Bend living out in the river they talk about you know like could have been Buckingham Palace for all they the way they go on about it you know it was the golden years they had everything they wanted they had every one they needed but they lived in a tin humpy tin shack no running water no electricity he was 30 before he had a place um that had those things. But they talk about this place <laughs> like it was the most amazing place to be. Mm. And I wanted to understand that. You know, I live in Sydney and I've got big city ideas and I think, yeah, you had nothing. Mm. How is that good? We need to look at that. <laughs> but I wrote the campgrounds because I wanted to feel what Dad and Auntie Georgina and Auntie Jenny, all them fellas, what they felt. I wanted to, to understand a place that was so simple, really, that had such a huge bearing on how I understand who I am, even though they had nothing to show. Mm. And writing that place was a way for me to go there. Mm. 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 That sense of almost... Almost joy. It is joy. The people, lives there that are living in the campgrounds. Mm. You know, Bess and Margaret and Celie, they don't want to leave. Mm. They don't want to live anywhere else. Mm. 
they're happy there. I think at one point one of the characters says, why would you want to live in town away from the river? Yeah. You know, because everything you have is right there. Yeah. And there's no sense of, um, I guess, loss or no. deficit in the way that they are. They're very mm. happy and joyful. And I think, I think that happened in a lot of towns. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, um, uh, when your business, when your success relies on your investment in somebody else and all you have are the people around you, you don't need anything else. Mm. And I think that's what happened, for what I understand happened for my family out there in Monkeela Bend. There was, you know, the Morgans and the McBrides and uh, uh, the Murrays down there and all those mobs together could provide what everybody needed and Mm. would share that. Mm. So, you know, uh, they... In those relationships, they had Buckingham Palace. Mm. It's a beautiful thing to remember. Mm. In you know, in something I try to make myself remember in my modern life, you know, you actually don't need much to be happy and to be useful to others. Mm. It's where the sense of self comes from mm. a lot of times, not what we own. Mm. Mm. And I think that comes through really strongly um, in the book. Who was the first character that you wrote? Jackie Bird was the first character I wrote because I thought, well, well I put that guitar down. Now what are you going to do, big shot? <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, I know about, so- I know about sound and um, I know about music and a, maybe a character that had this as their way of moving in the world will help me transition, jump one side of the river to the other. And Jackie Bird is sort of... Uh, I, hear, I used to hear writers talk about characters that sort of, you know, become the boss of you. I think, yeah, what are you talking about? You write that. <laughs> but this fella yeah. was the boss of me. <laughs> and it's, it's a really... Uh, it's a very music teacher thing They've, to be. They're very exacting. Uh, they demand excellence. And you need to step up to the mark. Jackie Bird is a song man whose mother was a star but also a bird. And he started as a strand of his mother's hair and floated in eternity until he landed at, a, at a, his landing place. And he, was, he is tasked with igniting the song of the crocodile. And he's got to wait there for his choir to arrive. And so he's a boss man, and he's cranky, and he's old. He was born old. Um, what more can a writer ask for, those little things there? And he, you know, he sort of was almost my task master. master. Mm. Whipping me into shape and providing that bridge from the thing that I knew too well to the thing I didn't know. Mm-hmm. He, was the, he, was, he was the fellow that came up and he... Mm. It's almost his story in a way too. He's the quiet story in the book. Mm. But without him there's no story. Almost. Without him there's no... There's no book. Mm. Did you hear his voice? 
in your head? Is oh, that... I only heard him when he gets cranky with me. <laughs> so, oh, gee, I'm, gonna, I'm tired. I'm going to have a coffee. Come on, girl. Don't leave me here. That's how he talks. It sounds... I, I feel really bizarre right now, but he's bossy. And, I mean, pushing and asking more. Mm. So he was, you know... A lot himself and a little bit me, I suppose. He might be a bit of the shadow, my inner music teacher. <laughs> um, I'm very grateful for that fella, mm. being born. Mm. Mm. Pushing you on, mm. making you keep writing. Yes. And also, I mean, he sits in the star, he knows what's coming. He knows the song. He's going he's gonna to get the song sung. Mm. And he knows what the song will make. I didn't know. I only knew as far as, you know, that word reached. And so I think, you know, having a character but also a faith in a perspective that sits above me and the work meant that I knew somebody was looking out for the way that I needed to go, mm. if that makes sense. Does that sound weird? A little bit. No. <laughs> no, some writers are like that. There's the, I don't know if everyone else knows this, but this is like editors, writers thing. There's plotters and pantsers, and some people have to plot and they know where it's going, they know what's happening, what all the characters will do. Some people have spreadsheets where they know what's going to happen in every scene. What? It's real. There are people like this in the world. And other people will start with a blank page and write and they have no idea where it's going to go. And most people fall somewhere in between, but will tend to like to do one or the other. Mm. So you're a pantser, mm. which is flying by the seat of your pants or riding by the seat of your pants is where that comes from. Total. Well, spreadsheets, uh, that's an interesting <laughs> idea. I, I know I'd get um, distracted with the colour coordination and I'd just get nothing done. Yeah. Plus, I don't like Excel. <laughs> Too linear for me. Yeah. I've <laughs> yeah. got a question from the audience. Nadi was asked what people, what she would like readers to take away from her book. What is her goal? What is her kind of mission with this story? So, thank you. When I started, no clue. <laughs> when I was inside of the story, meaning I had a bit of an idea and I felt I could move things a little bit, but was still open to a movement outside of my own creation. I, w I, was, I really wanted the idea of different levels and layers of knowledge or reading of the book. And, you know, that's a, it was a tricky thing because I used a lot of language and there's no translation. I tried to keep context of language um, as I used it. Um, but language was an example that I wanted, uh, you know, First Nations people to say that language word there is used the way that I recognise. I wanted Uluroi people to say, I know that word. I wanted senior Uluroi people to say, I know what that word means and what it's connected to. And I wanted non-Indigenous people to say the word. 
And so these different levels and layers of connecting to the story, something that I really wanted to try and mirror because that's, that's Blackfella teaching. You know, all the, a lot of the dreaming stories that we know are ki the kindergarten version. Uh, and depending on who you are, you can tell the young kid version, the teenage version, and then the older married version, married people version, then the senior version, then the, the um, clever people version. I love that idea because maybe in there is room for everybody, room for us all, not just room for people who love reading and come to beautiful events like this, but for kids in Lightning Ridge. I was laughing. I think I might have said to you, Grace, they only need to print two of these because I just want one in Walgett and one in Lightning Ridge and that's it. Yeah. At, the, at the central school there because having that in the library at the central school is a life fulfilled for me. They don't even need to read it. But maybe one day somebody will and say... I know that word, I recognise that person, I understand that feeling. So I wanted that to happen in my community, but I also wanted it to be meaningful and heartfelt for people from other places. So I wanted to have lots of layers going on. And I think if you buy the book and you don't understand anything, that's okay. It might speak to you in a different way. I think uh, Blackfellas, we were talking about this today, um, with Writers on the Road, beautiful um, authors, I'm learning a lot sitting in a van listening to these fellas, experts, and we're driving around. And um, I forgot what I was going to say anyway. It's been a long day. Uh, I forgot. Blackfellas. I was saying I learned a lot, but I didn't sort of show that I was. And blackfellas, something about blackfellas and whitefellas, yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. I forgot what it was, sorry. So all you want is for everyone to be able to take away exactly what they need from the book. That's pretty generous, I think, of someone to do. That's an incredibly generous offer to allow people into that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other really important thing that I really should say, that's why I remember now, was saying yesterday that Aboriginal people always in relationship, never not, always. And so this is something that I may have done, but, and I don't intend it to represent anyone, but it does, because it's got my language. Um, it's got my socialisation, it's got my form of relationships in there and this, I really feel this needs to be uh, re reflective of the relationships that I'm in. Uh, that was really important to me, that's why the, the, last, the last words are the beginning point for a dreaming story, mm. you know. That's a little bit of my dreaming, and then the big dream, the real dreaming happens after it. So I really wanted to have those connections and to have um, different layers so that people can feel, not just read, but feel and think. Mm. Mm.
It's incredibly generous. I don't know if it worked, but anyway, that was the plan. Yeah. <laughs> Should have made a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of, kind of like the Bora in that way, isn't it? That some people know it's there and some people know what it means and some people know what ceremony goes there. There's a Bora ring in the book that has been um, obstructed, I guess, and part of the coming to um, a, res- a resolution, not the resolution, but a resolution for these people is to go back to there and wake up that space. Mm. Jackie Bird... It's almost like somebody above, above needed, with the, the perspective needed to come down and help people activate that space because it was uh, maybe a little bit too difficult for the campgrounds people because they had a lot of pressures going on uh, around them and just needed that extra help, which, you know, we're very, uh, we're very used to allowing to happen from people that we we don't have with us anymore. Mm, I was going to mention that when you talk about relationships with everything, with everything, and it's whether it's the land or people or non-human animals or a particular place or a particular tree, but it's also about the people who've gone before. And mm. um, what was... You've kind of already touched on this, but why was it so important for you to bring the people that have passed on mm. through this storyline? Well, I sort of live my life like that. It's been... um, It's it's a normal thing for Simpsons anyway. We always talk about, you know, great-grandmother, great-great-granny, as if they're still there, Mm. because to talk that way is uh, keeping them alive. So that's something that's sort of natural in my family. Um, how could they not be in a story anyway? Because they made me. Mm. Whether you write them or not, they're still there. Mm. And, uh, you know, a good life, my version or Euleroy version of a good life is to be respectful and generous and kind to the people you've come from and the people you're with and the people that will come after you. So, mm. like Jackie Bird, if you don't do it, they rouse on you. <laughs> no, Dubs, see? Dubs is laughing, he knows. <laughs> yep. Mm. I think that's really important. Mm. What, what was it like on like a really basic level, moving from songwriting, mm. which is collaborative, into a space where you are by yourself yeah. in your head. Occasionally you have people working with you, editors, mentors, things like that, but what was it like to be kind of thrust mm. out on your own like that? I, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I, probably because I was ready for... Oh, actually, I... I uh, I was invited to a, a lab, creative lab. Those two words should never go together anyway. <laughs> should they, though? It doesn't work to, for me anyway. Creative lab um, with a whole lot of Aboriginal First Nations artists. Ellen Van Neven was there. 
Um, Vernon Arkey was the uh, facilitator. Dancers, writers, musicians, visual artists, uh, all the deadly blackfellas you could think of. Mm, you? I don't know how I scored a thing. So self-deprecating this one, even though she's amazing. But, but it, this is true. And, you know, we were, we were talking about works of scale and we were invited by um, people. Wesley, um, Enoch and Australia Council to think of... There was a phrase, I can't remember it. Uh, uh, um, big flash deadly projects. I can't remember what the formal thing was. <laughs> Signature works, there you go. <laughs> I like your version. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and... Halfway through, very naturally, everybody started to show their work in one of the, um, in one of the uh, uh, downtime, you know, lunchtime or whatever, one of the lunchtimes. Big circle, there was about 30 people. Everybody showed all this amazing work. And it got to me, this was only four years ago, I'd say, got to me and I went... Don't you have anything you can show? And the only things that I had were stiff gin songs recorded on somebody's YouTube that were taken five years ago. And at that moment, I was sort of confronted with the fact that <clears throat> I didn't have my own practice. Even though I loved and was an important part of a collaborative practice, without Kalina... You know, I, I actually can't, without Kalina, the, I could not show work without Kalina and say that was me because it's so integral. Mm. What we do with each other is important. And that's sort of not the right way to be anyway. So I had nothing to show. And I went away and thought about that for a long time because I felt like I should have. Mm. And actually getting into writing was a bit of a response to that. And also because I thought my music career was going to die a slow, slow, lonely death and I needed to reinvent myself, which is, you know, my monkey mind talking. Mm. Uh, and I thought, leave one behind and move to another. So stupid. That hasn't happened, though. They've kind I, of both... I thought that's what I was doing. Yeah. But what has happened? Uh, and actually, um, I think COVID's got a lot to do with this because I thought a lot over that time and thought about and the notion of self and community and, you know, all that stuff. And I realised that it's not... You don't just have music whoops, and literature and dance uh, and visual arts... The arts don't work like that anyway, but especially for blackfellas. Mm. <laughs> like the wonderful ladies that um, danced here. There was music there. There was image there. There was story in that. There was elemental, natural things in that. Mm. That you can't... These things overlap so much that you can't have... You can't drop one and do another and ex expect that not to inform or be a part, have a 
part of that other stuff in it. So it was that um, creative lab. And then four years later realising you can't leave one and you can't leave one behind and do the other and it be what you think it's gonna be. To do it right, you've got to pull in as much as you can and talk about how they all overlap and in, and connect mm. and interrelate. Mm. That makes sense to me mm. now. <laughs> um, that's that's been and actually you've been you're my great teacher for that. Grace has this beautiful way of just you know, she talks even when she's listening. Do you think that, Mum? <laughs> oh, Mum's saying too. Mum's saying that's right. But she does. Very... The silence speaks volumes. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. Because that different way of being opens you up to different ways of seeing. Yeah. Mm. Seeing yourself, seeing what you do, seeing what you think you're doing. Mm. And... Um, the sweet spot, I had a boss at a job I had once had, and he talked about sweet spot all the time. So much that I really hate those words. <laughs> but I mean it actually in a beautiful, uh, in a beautiful nectary way tonight. The sweet spot is finding as many connections as you can and just letting it fall where it may. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you, and thank you for the nice things that you've said about me too. That's I, I, I could go on. No, no. Tonight is about you, Nadi. <laughs> nice things about you. Um, so you did write a song after you wrote the book, a song, the crocodile song. Yeah. Which you're going to perform for us mm. right now. You want me I to think. do it now, Rodia? I think so. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. In the book I wrote the song, you know, I wrote the lyrics of the song of the crocodile and I thought, don't do that. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. Keep that space. Keep the silence. Uh, that was a really good thing, actually. So this song I had written a long time ago because uh, there's a place out, out our way called Narran Lakes that has been handed back um, well, not hand it back. It's co-managed with um, community national parks, and it's been kind of a, a, a dormant um, old cattle station until they open it up to all our mob to go back out there and it remember us. And we, me, and my sisters, we whenever we get a chance, we go out there. It's beautiful inland lake. A uh, big midden, um, a huge bird breeding ground, straw necked ibis. I might have seen some around here, did I? Straw necked ibis? Yeah. Um, and oh, it just makes sense to us, that place. Anyway, when I, uh, when I sing this, no matter where I am, I float off and I go there. It's a beautiful thing about music. So this song is about Dari War, created by the crocodiles, and there's a little bit of language. Two crocodiles ate the, ate the creator's wives. 
and he tracked them over land. He came to Dari Wall and they had a big fight. Tails made the lake. He cut the women out of their bellies and placed them on the ant's nest and the crocodiles slunk away. And the ants ate all the slime, bit all the slime off um, two wives and brought them back to life. And the, the women are the bosses in Yuluroi country. You know, no crocodile's going to get us. Uh, and are the water keepers and the law keepers. Mm. So they're not victims in this story, they're the bosses. And they probably knew what was going on all along. So it's called Dari War. Daddy, oh, 
bed filled with the song of Daddy Thank you. That was incredible. Mm. It's such a pleasure to sit and yarn with you and to get the added musical bonus. I think we're all a bit treated tonight. You were supposed to do the birds, remember? Ah, ah. <laughs> yeah. She, she bailed on me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't claim any singing talent. <laughs> That's not singing. We work on it, eh? Yeah, I'll do it at the wrong time. Just like, no. no, that's okay. Um, so thank you all so much for joining us tonight. It's been a real privilege to sit here with this wonderful person and speak about her wonderful book with you. I would also like to thank Byron Writers Festival and Copyright Agency and Ani Delta and the dancers yeah. and all of you for coming and making this a really, really special evening. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.